0: Well, happy Sabbath once again, everyone. Another Sabbath where we're separated in bodily form, but we are united in the Spirit. Having said that, I still miss you all and long to see you. We want to welcome everyone who is watching today and those who will watch this service at a later date, especially those on different time zones on the other, time, other side of the world. We just love you and wish you all a very happy Sabbath today and wish God's blessing upon you. If you achieve anything (coughs) in this life, it's not going to be without perseverance. Anything worth having is really worth fighting for, and sometimes we're going to go through hardships And we're going to have to persevere to reach the goal because there's always going to be obstacles, hardships along the way. And we're just going to have to press through those. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 24, Proverbs chapter 24, and we'll look at verse 16, Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. We have a formidable adversary who is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's very, very powerful. But the Bible says he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Ultimately, we do have victory. Amen. Amen. For the righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again each time. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. They give up. Uh, those of you who are in our congregation, and some of those who watch regularly, you know that I am uh, I am a musician. My primary uh, instrument is piano and organ. I played, Hammond organ in a, in a rock and roll band. I had organs before that when I played in other bands. I generally play piano more now here in the congregation. But learning to play was a challenge. And you know, when I was nine years old, my parents wanted me to take lessons. And so I had to take lessons from a lady that actually was just lives right over here on Detroit just this street behind our church, and I lived right over here across the street from the back of the church. And so I could walk for my 15-minute uh, lesson, but I had to walk right past these houses here, and those houses weren't there when I was 9 years old and 10 and 11. That was a field where we played baseball and we played football. We played games out there. And it was very difficult for me because 15 minutes seemed like 15 hours. And I'm sitting in there, and I'm not interested at all. I, at first, I was interested, of course. You know how it is. Learn a new instrument, and then you find out it's not easy. And then you find out you've got to go to your lessons, and then you have to, uh, you find out that you have to have so many minutes of practice every day. Now, I was only assigned 15 minutes of practice. I had 15-minute lesson once a week, 15 minutes a day practice, and I still wanted to quit. It just seemed unbearable to me. I just, this is hard. I can't endure this. I can't persevere through this. I I have to practice 15 minutes before I can go outside and play after I come home from school. Now, I went to school right right up here, two blocks from here, elementary school. So I could walk two blocks to my house, less than one block to my piano teacher but it seems like such a terrible hardship. But you know, my parents would not let me quit. I wanted to quit lots of times. I asked, please, can I quit? I don't, I don't want to do this. I have other things I'd rather be doing. I'd, be, I'd rather be out here playing sports. But my parents wouldn't let me quit. And the, the reason why is because when my father was a young boy, His parents had him take piano lessons. He wanted to quit. They said no. He asked to quit again and again. And they said no, and they made him practice. Then one day, in an act of rebellion defiance, he took a can opener, and he peeled the ivory. And it was a nice piano with real ivory keys. He peeled the ivory. He pried them off the keys. And so his parents, my grandparents, they had a decision to make. What would they do? Would they make him continue on and persevere? And maybe make him do chores in order to repair that piano? Or would they just give in and let him quit? And what they did was, is they gave in and let him quit. And my father regretted that. My grandparents regretted that the rest of their lives because he had not learned to persevere and endure until the end and anything worth doing is worth persevering and pressing forward to it's not easy athletes go through gr- grueling uh, you know practices they 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 do weight training all kinds of different trainings uh, yeah i remember when i would was trying to really get good at playing uh, the the organ. I would practice up to five, six hours a day just by myself, not counting the time that I practiced with the band. And as a result of that, it paid dividends. I got about as good as I guess I could get. And I'm happy now because I have a recording studio now in my office over here. And I, I can just sit down and play whatever comes into my mind. And I can be inspired by events, and it will come out in music, and I'm very thankful for that. And I would counsel anyone to take up something that is difficult, take up something that will cause you to have to persevere. It has, It should be something really that uh, you love. And maybe it's an instrument you would like to be able to play. Maybe it's piano, maybe it's guitar. Uh, maybe it's bagpipes or, or a violin, or, or maybe it's fitness, Maybe you have a certain goal to get, uh, you know, a certain level of fitness or maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's tennis or maybe it's basketball or, or something else. Maybe it's education. Maybe you set a goal where you want to learn about a specific subject. I remember one time back in the old days of worldwide, we had spokesman's club and then graduates club. And, you know, I've called it a necessary evil. I hated it because I hated getting, getting up in front of people and giving a speech. Now, talking about the Bible and Bible principles is pretty easy, but you're not, you, we weren't allowed to do that. We had to pick a secular subject. But, you know, we only had to speak six to ten minutes, depending on whether it was Spokesman's Club or Graduate Club. But still, I hated it. I would sweat it when I would have a speech because I didn't want to have to get up there and in front of the public and give my speech but I felt like it, it was a necessary evil, and I came across a story once that I gave a speech on in spokesman's Club. It was a story about a man named Wilt Peters, and Mr. Peters grew up uh, the son of a sharecropper, uh, working in the fields, sharing, you know, the land belonged to uh, someone else, a former master of slaves, but then when the slaves were emancipated, then. Some of the slaves stayed on, not as slaves, but as sharecroppers, and they continued to work the crops, and then they, would, they got to share in the harvest with the, the owner of the land. So he grew up like that. He had no formal education. He, he, he did get to go to, to uh, elementary school uh, a little bit, but he never really learned to read really well. He, was, he would be labeled... Are categorized as illiterate. But as he got older, as he got to be a young man, he really had a desire to learn. And he wanted to go to college, so he visited a uh, college. And he told them that he wanted to go to college there. He wanted to enroll in the college. And uh, after they found out that he really couldn't read, they said, well, you know, son, you, you can't read, and you, you can't go to college here, uh, you know, because reading is a requirement. So he taught himself to read with the help of some others. And then he continued to go back to try to enroll in that college. And they turned him down several times. But finally, out of an act of mercy, they allowed him to be enrolled into that small college. And to everyone's surprise, except perhaps Wilt's surprise, but everyone else was surprised that he truly exceeded And this man went on to uh, five master degrees. He went on to learn seven foreign languages so he could speak fluently. And at the end, he became a professor himself in a college. And they asked him one day when they were talking about his remarkable life, what is the secret? And he said, really, there is no real secret You just got to keep on keeping on. No matter what the obstacles are, have in mind what your goal is and then step into it, walk toward it, work toward it, and keep on keeping on no matter how difficult it is. No matter how many times you're turned down, said you can't do it, keep on keeping on. Just persevere. And that was his story. And I think anything worth doing, you know, we live in a culture where people say, if anything gets difficult, I'm out of here. Even Christians, they think if, if, they, if they have any hardships, it must come from the devil. It can't come from God. But when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, and you, but you just look at some of the famous people in the Bible, how many hardships they had, difficult times, things that they had to persevere and work through that taught them. To have faith in God. We do need God. We can't do it alone. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But most of us in this culture, I mean, if it's just too hard, people just give up. And that's why I say it's a good thing to take up something, whether it's a hobby, something that is difficult, something that will literally teach you something about yourself. Teach you ultimately that you can persevere, that you can push through, that you can do what you set out to do if you're willing to pay the price. Jesus said, there's a price in following him. And sit down and calculate the costs because there is a price. And I put the price as everything, including your own life. We lay down our life, and allow his life to be picked up. Now, as we read here in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, the righteous man falls. It's not that he doesn't fall. It's not that he doesn't fail. He does. But the righteous get up, where the wicked stumble and stay down. You know, I've told the story about the old Native American grandfather's talking to his grandson. And they see a wolf. And the grandfather says, see that wolf, son? He said, yes. He said, you know, there are two wolves in every man. There's two wolves in me, and they're fighting. There's a good wolf, and there's a bad wolf. There's a wolf that wants to do good, and there's a bad wolf that wants to do evil. And those two wolves are in me, And they're in you too. And they're in every single person. And they fight. And there's a struggle your entire life against these two wolves. And the young brave asked the grandfather, well, which wolf will win? And the grandfather said, the wolf that you feed, whatever you feed will win. Now, the Bible says that we are a new creation We are a new man in Christ Jesus. We are all sons of God. We also know that we have the old man that is present with us. Yes, he's been crucified. Yes, he is the body of death. But he is still active to the point to where the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, he could actually cause him to do the very things that he hates. And that old man rises up in us too. So the key is... That old man is the bad wolf, and the new man is the good wolf, and we need to feed the good wolf. We need to be about good things, thinking about good things, setting our mind on the things above. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Notice verse 1. This is following, of course, uh, the context is the, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And this is what follows. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, therefore, since we have these witnesses, therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's read it again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside. You hear that? Lay aside. Lay aside in your mind. You know, there came a point when I was taking piano lessons that I had to lay aside those 15 minutes a day to practice. And after a while, after I began to get good at it, and after I began to play in a band and became popular at school and had fun and playing songs that I really wanted to play, I was motivated. You know, I wasn't so motivated to play Brahms lullaby. And that was in my book. And I had to learn those things. I wasn't so motivated. You know, there was usually in a lesson book, you know, a grade, grade one, two, three, four, five, six, there are a few uh, pieces of music that somebody like me might be motivated to learn to play. Other than that, you just have to force yourself. And I have to say, early on, I wasn't good at forcing myself. (laughs) I wasn't. Literally, sometimes I would not even practice on the lesson that I was assigned because I didn't like the music. I just didn't like it. So I didn't even practice that. And I'd go, and the first time I would play it uh, since my last lesson was my last lesson. (laughs) And my teacher would think, well, she was a very patient lady. Uh, You know, there, there was another famous piano teacher. Here in Russville, who wasn't so patient. Matter of fact, she she would have a ruler and she would slap. My wife went to her and she would slap her fingers, you know, uh, if they made a mistake. Now, my teacher was very patient. She was very kind. She was very patient. And I took advantage of it. Oh, yes, I did. I took advantage of Miss Walker. I'd come in and she'd think that I'd practice all week. She'd think that, boy, I am just not very talented. <laughs> But it wasn't that. I had talent. It was just that I wasn't motivated. And she didn't hold me to a high enough standard, and my parents really didn't either. They didn't know that I was slacking. They didn't know that. I remember one time I was slacking at school, and, and my parents uh, got a visit from one of the teachers and uh, told them, you know, we did IQ tests, and your son is slacking, And so I guess I didn't slack quite as much, but I slacked as much as I could get away with after that. But I am very thankful that I was into sports. I wanted to be very good at baseball. I played baseball for many years, organized baseball. And then even after I got grown, I played in the softball leagues and in the church. We played as many as 130 games sometimes in a year. And um, so, you know, I, I love playing. I was good at it. I love playing that sport. And it didn't, I could practice all day, even by myself. You know, if I'm just throwing a ball against the steps and catching it and throwing it back or, you know, hitting balls or, or if, I, if I didn't have anyone to play with, I just pick up rocks and take a broomstick and just hit them into a field over and over. You know, if you can hit a rock with a broomstick, you can hit a baseball pretty easy with a baseball bat. And so I got good at it because I was motivated, to. But I had to persevere. i stay out there in the hot sun all day long. But see, I was motivated. It was something I wanted to do. I loved doing it. But there are things that we go through that we don't love. Now, that will really test our character. You know, sometimes we have to do something that's very difficult to do. Maybe, you know, we have to swallow our pride. Maybe we have to go admit that we're wrong. About something, maybe we have to go apologize to someone. Maybe we have to forgive someone of, uh, you know, some pain that they afflicted on us, or we feel like they have. And you know, I mean, we all live in glass houses. We all have been hurt. We all hurt one another. And the truth is, we've all hurt our heavenly Father. We've all hurt our beloved Jesus Christ. And even suffering on the cross. He just said, Father, forgive them. Just forgive them. Forgive them. Look at me. I'm willing to hang on this cross. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to suffer this shame that I despise because I love them. I have hope for them. I don't want them to be held accountable. I'll take it. I'll be the propitiation. And of course, that pleased the Father. We find in Isaiah chapter 53 it pleased the Father to bruise him, to break him in pieces. But we have to lay aside things, as we see here in chapter 1 or chapter 12, verse 1. If we're going to follow their example, we have to lay aside. Abraham had to lay aside the great city of Ur and come out and live in a desert. He had to be willing to lay aside the promised child, his only begotten son, the son of promise, Isaac, he had to lay it aside. Look at all that Job had to lay aside. Now, he wasn't asked to lay aside those things. It was taken from him, but he was willing. At the end, he was willing because it brought him near God. So if we're going to follow this walk. If we're going to keep on keeping on to victory in Christ Jesus, to a life of victory in Christ Jesus, we're going to have to lay aside whatever it is that encumbers us. Now, what was encumbering me from practicing my piano? It was just the the thought that they're playing baseball out here, and I want to be out there playing baseball. I don't, I'm not interested. I was more interested in playing baseball than I was sitting at my piano for 15 minutes practicing a song I didn't even like. But my parents would not let me quit. And I had to continue on. And I continued on. And you know, it was not until maybe three years, when maybe I was about 12 years old, that I discovered, you know what? I've learned enough that I can play in a little rock band. And we put together a little rock band. I started putting together a little rock bands around here in Russellville, and you know, and we began to practice and try to do some of the Beatles songs and the Monkees and some of the other songs. And and you know, we weren't very good, you know, and uh, it was really hard to find like a good guitar player. And a, or to find a drummer at all. But eventually, you know, it ended up to where I, found, I got better, and I found musicians that were better, and it ended up to where I actually was offered a recording contract with Casino Records. and uh, But it was just exactly at that time, at 20 years old, just turning 20, that the Lord called me to this faith and i had to choose which way i was going to go and i understood something i understood that I, I had lived for many years i was thinking i would be a professional musician that i would be in a rock and roll band and that we would tour and you know i didn't care all that much about fame i really loved the music and i wanted to make a living at it i didn't want to play bars i wanted to play concerts but you know, that's what I really wanted. That's what my life was going to be about. I really didn't think about too much else, you know, from the time maybe I was 14, 15 years old until, you know, I was 19 or 20. I thought that's exactly what I will do. I was, We were very good. Uh, we won the Battle of the Bands here in Arkansas, and we were very good. I played in some very good bands, and some of those guys are still playing professionally today. But, you know, when God called me, knowing Christ meant more to me than anything else. I had to spend, you know, about three weeks alone, just me and the Lord. And I I didn't know what I wanted to do, but the more I learned, the more I read the Bible, the more I learned about God, meditated, let God minister to me and speak to me somehow in the Spirit, I realized that I wanted that more than anything else. I really wanted to fix my eyes on Jesus and that knowing Him and following Him meant more. I could leave my family. I could leave my music career. I could leave everything. I counted the cost. At the time, I had a newborn daughter, my first child. My wife was not religious. I did not know how this was going to take place. I had to decide in my mind, if she was an encumbrance, was I willing to lay her aside, my wife and my firstborn daughter? Was I willing to do that? Was I willing to lay aside? Because I understood how radical this faith was. I understood. See, it doesn't seem as radical now when you say you're a holy day Sabbath keeper. But believe me, 46 years ago, 47 years ago, it was way more radical then. Way more radical. There's a whole lot of Sabbath keeping groups now. There's a whole lot of different groups who keep the feasts, the annual feast of God and keep the food laws. Not then. Not then at all. And so that's the faith that I was coming into. And I knew that I would have to be willing to lay down some things. I had an uncle, my mother's brother. I had an aunt, my mother's sister. And both of their families had just come into this faith, and my parents hated it. They thought it was just a cult. They thought it was heresy and false teaching. But that's the faith that I came into. And it was the truth. And I knew that I may have to lay aside anything that would encumber me from fixing my eyes on Jesus and following Him. I didn't want anything in the way that would keep me from keeping on, just keep on keeping on. And my parents did not accept it well at all. My wife, it took a while, but she became converted. But my parents actually moved away from our town here, the city of Russellville, and moved about 50 miles away on Lake Conway. And I hardly ever saw them. We were hardly ever in contact. After eight years, they came back. And I went and I sat down with my parents and I said, Listen, I love y'all. I want to honor you. I believe in honoring you. I want to honor you and I will even obey you in any way I possibly can. All I'm asking is, I'll do anything you want me to do. Just don't ask me to give up my convictions and following the Bible and my God. I can't give what is not mine to give. Those were given to me by God in my view. And after that, we had a good relationship. And my father, of course, uh, actually lived with me the last four years of his life and uh, joined us for services. So it says, lay aside every encumbrance. I want you to think, you want to write that down. Lay aside every encumbrance. Now, what is encumbering you from following Jesus? I mean, think about what is it? Is it greed? Is it lust? Is it pride? Is pride standing in the way? Has it stood in the way of, Lucifer, is it unforgiveness? Is that standing in the way? Is it a bitter root? Is it just not willing to go all the way, not giving everything, not laying down everything, trying to just say, well, I'll I'll give so much, but I'm not going to give that. Well, it takes everything, amen? Amen. Lay aside every encumbrance and lay aside whatever sin easily entangles you. We are all different, but we're all susceptible. The devil uses his tactics. He's got an overall strategy to bring us down, to cause us to stumble and fall. And he uses tactics. And the tactics that he may use for you may be different than the uh, tactics that he uses against me. They are familiar spirits. They know us. So lay aside whatever encumbers you, whatever is in the way that keeps you from walking and running. And whatever sin entangles us, that just tangles us up. You know, you've had to untap, I mean, I, I, when I fish. I've used a bait caster, and if you don't know what that is, well, it's it's like a professional rod and reel. You can't just cast it and let go of the spool because the spool keeps turning. You see, you have to cast it, and then you have to put your thumb on the spool, and you have to slow it down gradually with your thumb. Otherwise, you're going to have a hairball. You're going to have a tangled mess that's going to take a long time to get out, believe me. And trying to use a baitcaster, I've had lots of tangled messes that I've had to deal with. But they are the most, the most accurate because you're actually controlling where it goes while it's in the air. And that's the only reel that can do that. But when it's entangled, it will not work. It can't work. And there's some sins that entangle you And there's some sins that entangle me that keeps me from running. And we need to identify those. We need to write them down, have them down. Write down what things encumber you. Write down what sins entangle you that slow you down. Listen, I want to just ask you this. Now listen, what do you want? Do you want what God wants for you? You know, the Bible says all things were made by God and for His glory. You and I were made for the glory of God. Our lives are to bring glory to God. That's the purpose of our lives. Now, we need to bring glory to God in this life, and He's going to glorify us. We will see the glory when we are transfigured into the image of Jesus Christ at his return. And then we will be glorified in heaven. We'll be glorified spirit beings, sons of the living God, the very bride of Jesus, the beloved of the beloved. That's what we're called for. We are his administration. We are a, we're kings and priests. And we have a home. We have a goal, a place that we're, journey, we're on a journey to. It's the new Jerusalem. And even now the Bible says that we have come to Mount Zion to the general assembly of the firstborn, to myriads of angels in heaven. And I believe that even though I believe I'm, it looks like I'm in our sanctuary in the crusade church of God in Rustville, Arkansas, I believe that we're literally transported and we are now in the presence of the Father and the Son, the general assembly of the firstborn, our brothers and sisters all over the world, and in the presence of myriads of angels. We don't see them with our spiritual eyes, with our natural eyes. But I believe if God opened our spiritual eyes, we would see that. Now, that's our goal. But our goal is not just being saved. Our goal is not just enduring until the end to keep on keeping on. Our goal is to glorify God and to please Him along the way. Do you want to please the Lord? You see, it pleased the Father to give His own Son for you and for me. It pleased Him because He saw the result. He saw the end of it. He saw... Many sons being brought to glory. God expanding his family. The angels looking and see what is man? You know, it wasn't just young David that looked up there in Psalm uh, 8 and said, what is man? That you're mindful of him. It was the angels. The angels are still probably looking. The Bible says that they look, they're longing, they're looking like the prophets of old, wondering, what is it? What is the mystery of the ages? What is it that God is doing? Well, He is He is expanding His family. He is bringing many sons to glory. So let us put lay aside lay aside whatever encumbers us. You know, when Jesus on that last Passover, He He was He got up from table and He went over to get a towel and a basin of water to wash the disciples' feet. The first thing he did was lay, lay aside his robe, his garment, because it would encumber him. He was going to have to get down on his knees at the foot of his disciples and wash their feet. So he laid aside his robe. But that wasn't the only thing Jesus laid aside. Jesus laid aside his divinity, You know, Philippians chapter 2 says that he was equal with God from the very beginning, but he emptied himself of that divinity in order to become a man, in order to bring many sons. He became a man to bring many sons to glory as sons of God. Shouldn't we then be willing to give anything, to lay aside anything that encumbers us, uh, to put away any sin that entangles us, and so he says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the effector of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning of verse 24, Paul said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives surprise? Now notice what he says, so run in such a way that you may win. Now, think about that. That takes an overall strategy. You have a plan to win. Do you hear me? I said you have a plan to win. What is your plan to win this race? This is an endurance race. It's going to be painful. It's painful to grow. But let the pain do its work, the work that pain does. Defy the urge to quit. Run in such a way as you may win. You know, in 1983, I don't know if you know this, but there's a race in Australia from um, Sydney to Melbourne. It's 443.7 miles long. And it's an ultra-marathon that generally takes five days. you think about that. I mean, five days. You're running over 100 miles a day. And only the ultra-athletes, ultra-marathon runners enter into this race. Many of them never finish this race. 543.7 miles. These runners are... Generally, under 30 years old, they are sponsored runners by uh, shoe companies like Adidas and like Nike and Brooks, and they are well-conditioned, world-class marathon runners. They generally run 18 hours and then sleep six, and then 18, and then sleep six again. Now, in 1983 as they were about to start this race, there was a farmer, an Australian farmer, who was 61 years old. His name was Cliff Young. And he showed up wearing overalls and boots, work boots. And people thought that he was just a spectator, you know, because there's lots of spectators there. But he went over and he entered the race and he got a card. And he put the number on his overalls. What number racer he was, and the immediately, immediately the press picked up on it. Some of the other runners too, and they went over and they said, uh, "Are you entering this race?" He said, "Yes." He said, "Well, you can't possibly. Well, it could be dangerous for you. You're 61 years old. You're not dressed for. You're wearing work boots." And some laughed. And on the TV, when they were showing the race, there was people that were really having a good time mocking him in the media, that this old farmer, and they said, you can't do it. And he said, well, I think I can. Well, what makes you think you can? He said, well, I grew up poor, very poor, on a farm, a sheep farm, 2,000 acre sheep farm. We had 2,000 sheep on those 2,000 acres, and we were so poor, we had no horses, we had no way, and when there was a storm rolling in, my father would send me out, and I had to go out there and gather those sheep, and sometimes I would have to run two or three days. Well, they let him run the race, and as soon as the race began, of course, They they laughed a little bit at him because he didn't really run. He just kind of shuffled a little bit on those work boots and overalls. And the other runners were conditioned runners. And they paced themselves, but they began running. And they left him very, very, very far behind. And so they're running, you know, out through this very remote, you know, out back and... um, So, you know, nobody knows where everybody is all the time. They know where they are, where they stop maybe to sleep and things like that. But by the fourth day, after into the fourth day, they discovered that he wasn't so far behind. And so as the fifth day began uh, and the runners began, people discovered he was actually in the lead. And this man, 61 year old farmer in overalls and work boots, broke the record by nine hours of that ultra marathon from Sydney to Melbourne. And it turns out he never stopped, he never slept, he didn't know he was allowed to. And when they awarded him the $10,000 prize, he didn't even know there was a prize for winning the race. He didn't want the money, so he said just divide it among the other runners. And of course that endeared him to everyone. But he just kept on. He just kept on keeping on. You know, it had to be difficult. He ran through the night. He never stopped. He was weary. He was sleepy. His body was crying. And he, you know, there was encumbrances. You know his body was fatigued. He was hungry. You know, he had to thirst. I'm sure he had water, but he had to thirst, you know. He had he had to hunger. and But he had to set that aside, whatever encumbered him. But, you know, he was confident. As David was confident against Goliath, why? Because he had seen the Lord delivered him from a bear. He had seen the Lord deliver him from a lion. He killed them both. So when he went out to face this Philistine giant, he said, the same God that delivered me from the lion and delivered me from the bear, he will deliver me from this Philistine giant. And he told him, you come to me with a sword and a spear but I come to you in the name of the living God. You know, Goliath had no chance at all. But you see, this, when uh, Cliff Young was a boy, his father depended on him to go round up those sheep when the storm was coming. And he would do it. He pushed himself, as he said, to run two or three days He never stopped, and he would gather those 2,000 sheep up, and he would bring them home. Now, he had learned by his experience, you see, now what would have happened had that young man at the time decided, you know, I can't do this, this is too hard. I can't continue running. I can't run two or three days straight. I have to stop and eat. I can't. I'm fatigued. I I have to rest. I have to sit down. I have. This is just too hard. What if he had that mentality? He would have never had the confidence. He would never have the belief in himself at 61 years old in overalls and work boots that he could run 500 and 43.7 miles and get there before the greatest ultramarathon runners in the world could. He was running in such a way as to win. And you have to decide, when you put your hands to the plow, when we're following Christ when we're walking this walk of victory in Jesus, there's going to be times that we have to keep on keeping on. You're going to feel like I have to just lay down and rest. I can't do this. I can't put up with this. I can't deal with this anymore. I can't deal with this person anymore. I can't deal with it. I'm... through. You're not through. You don't lay aside the person. The person is not the encumbrance. The encumbrance is in you. It's a part of your character. And if you continue on, if you do what you're supposed to do, if you love, you forgive, you don't remember wrongs, suffer, and you thank the Lord for everything that you've been through because it's taught you to be, to persevere. It's taught you to endure, and it will help you. It, it teaches you that you can endure because you're going to have to go through a very difficult time. You know, we are living in these last days. Every sign looks, tells us that we're living in the last days. We're coming into a time of trouble like no other time in history. The great tribulation and the day of the Lord that follows. And most of humanity is going to suffer like it's never suffered before. Jesus said, there has never been a time like this, nor ever shall be again. And unless this time is cut short, all flesh would perish. But for the sake of the elect, that's the people of God, God will cut short this time. This will be a time when there'll be severe persecution. We see in the book of Revelation, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ, that the blood is crying out, how long, Lord, how long will it be before you avenge us? You're allowing us to be slaughtered all day long. We find in in Daniel chapter seven that the antichrist possessed by the devil himself will wear down the patience of the saints. It's going to happen. And we need to know, like Cliff Young knew, like Wilt Peters knew, that we have it in us if we'll lay aside whatever encumbers us, lay aside the sin that entangles us, that we can endure, that we can overcome, that we can persevere, that we can go through hard things. You know, Paul had said, I've learned the secret of being content. I've been in hunger, and I've been well-fed. I've been in exposure, and I've had it good. I've been out there laying on the ground in the deep, alone in the ocean all night and all day. And I've lived in nice places. I've had good clothes, and I've had rags. I've suffered. But I've learned one thing. I've learned the secret of being content. And you know what that secret is? I can tell you what it is. Knowing what he said to the Romans, all things work to the good of those who love God. When you know whatever you're going through is working to your good, you can be content. Because you know there's a payday coming. You know there's a harvest on the way. You know, there's something good coming. Oh, there may be a cloud. There may be a storm. But there's a silver lining on that dark cloud. Because there's sunshine on the other side. There's glory on the other side. There is everlasting love. There is joy forevermore. The fullness of joy. Unspeakable joy on the other side. Let us... Not take that lightly. Let us run this race as Cliff Young ran that great marathon in Australia. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. You know, the Bible says that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I think that's 1 John chapter 4. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And that person in us is a man named Jesus Christ. It is a man that terrifies the devil. You think about this. The devil tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. He did not succeed. Then the devil, when Jesus was about to begin his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord led Jesus up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And there's Jesus, fasting without food, without water, 40 days and 40 nights, weakened in physical form, hungry and thirsty, and being tempted in all things. The Bible says... Jesus was tempted in all things, yet he overcome. He defeated the devil in every single one of them. We don't know. Anything you've ever been tempted by, he was tempted by. He was tempted in all things as we are. So anything that a person can be tempted by, Jesus was tempted by. And he was tempted by that in a physically weakened form. But when we are physically weakened like that, we are spiritually strong. But the devil tempted him with physical things. He said, you're hungry. You haven't eaten. Turn these stones. You're the son of God. Turn these stones into breads and eat. Oh, the angel's going to take care of you. Don't worry if you happen to fall off this pinnacle of this temple. Uh, you know, I mean, the angels will take care of you in case you stumble and you fall. They'll take care of you. And not only that, look here. Just join me. Join me. Join me against your daddy, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. They are mine to give. I am the God of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm the God of this world. I'll give these all to you if you'll just join me. Join me. But Jesus overcome. The devil thought, okay, I've got to kill him. I can't get him to join me, so now I've got to kill him. Now, brethren, I want you to think about that. The devil works the same way. Maybe if he has trouble getting you to join him, maybe he will seek some type of strategy, some type of tactic to kill you. First, he wants to kill you spiritually. He wants to draw you away. He wants to, you to question your faith. But he may literally just want to kill you. You know, demons sometimes kill people. Sometimes they do. But he hates you. He despises you. But you can beat the devil because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, which is the devil. This man who is in you, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who is God, and who is living in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, is extremely powerful. That is the very person that spoke the worlds into creation, that spoke to the wind and the waves and said, be calm, who raised the dead, who gave sight to the blind, hearing to those who were deaf, made the lame walk. And the mute speak, healed all manner of diseases. That same power that was in Jesus and is in Jesus is now living in you And me by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Now, Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, 20, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live is not mine, but Christ living in me. Now, he's using our bodies. Christ is dwelling in us as a temple. He's walking through us. Now, we can encumber him by putting things in the way that keep him from moving freely, moving us freely. We can resist. We can allow sin that entangles us to where Christ in us cannot move freely without restrictions, you see we need to give in and say, Lord, your will be done. I am yours. Your will be done. This is your vessel. You purchased it with your own blood. Therefore, receive this vessel and enter me, operate through me, give me the strength, convict my heart of my sins, convict my heart of whatever it is that encumbers me from a from moving freely or allowing you to move freely in me. Because I want your will to be done. I want to honor the pledge that I made to you when I was baptized, when I renewed the covenant with you at the Passover. I want to walk before you unleavened and pure. You know, when you think about a baby, we can learn a lot from just a baby. We are called infants. We're called babes in Christ. Uh, we're called little children. Jesus called us little children. The apostle John calls us little children, our beloved ones, beloved children, children of God, <clears throat> When we think about little children, just think about this. God creates life. And then the natural, we have a child, you know. Many of us have had children. And we have seen them go from a helpless baby to where they began to try to set up and they began to try to roll over. Now, they will try to roll over before they're able to roll over. And they persevere in trying to roll over. In other words, they keep on keeping on <laughs> trying to roll over. Finally, they discover something. After much effort and determination and patience, you think babies don't have much patience, right? Well, maybe when they're hungry, they don't have a lot of patience. Maybe when they're hurting or they're irritable or they have the colic or something, they're not all that patient. But babies are extremely patient. Think about that. We can learn to be patient and endure and persevere by watching babies. I watch my babies eventually try and try and try. And finally, they turn over. They roll over. And then after a time, they don't stop there. They're not content with being there. They want to raise their little knees up and they want to try to crawl. And you know how it is. They don't. They they can raise up, and then they just walk around a little bit. And they they don't they don't know how to move their little knees and their little hands, arms yet to try to crawl. But they keep trying, and they they can't do it. But they keep trying. You see. What what it happens in the natural has to happen in the spiritual. We can't just get discouraged and say, I can't do it. What if a baby did that? Who do you know? Who grown person do you know is still not past the setting up stage? Do you know any grown people that crawl to work? I don't know any that crawl to work. It's in a baby to progress, to grow to maturity. And it's in us spiritually to progress and grow to maturity in Christ Jesus. And as a baby has to learn to first, you know, roll over and then, you know, set up and then without, and learn his balance, he falls over many times. Many, many times he falls over. But you know, he never stops trying. That baby doesn't even think about stop trying. It's just in him. And in that new creation we are in Christ Jesus, it's just in you and me too. If we lay the flesh out of it, if we yield to the Spirit, it is in you to keep on keeping on. And so the baby learns to crawl. But you know, the baby's not satisfied. The baby wants to stand. So the baby pulls up on coffee tables and couches and other parts of furniture. And the baby falls. How many times? Hundreds of times. Sometimes does a baby uh, hurt? get hurt when the baby falls? Yes, sometimes that happens. Sometimes a baby falls, hits his head on the coffee table or falls on something that's in the floor, one of his toys, and there's pain involved. Does that stop the baby from pulling up a few minutes after he's finished crying? No, it does not discourage him there's no discouragement in him he goes over there and he pulls himself up again until he can stand and he's not he's not content with that he pulls himself up but now he wants to let go he wants to stand freely on his own balance without any assistance and you know what happens boom that's why babies have padded butts boom but they don't always land on their butts Sometimes they land on their arm or their shoulder or their head. Sometimes they get hurt, but they do it again. They persevere. They're patient. They're determined, and they push through the failures. You see, they're like a righteous man. They fall, but they rise again that baby gets up. Now he's not satisfied with just being able to stand there and be balanced on his own. Now he wants to walk. Now he wants to take steps. And there's a whole new challenge, you see, to his little life, to him maturing. Now, I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk. Maybe you're setting up. Maybe you're crawling. Maybe you're standing up holding on to something, or maybe you can stand up without holding on. Maybe you're walking. Maybe you're running. Maybe you're even past running. Maybe now you're jumping. Maybe now you're spinning. Maybe now you're riding a bike. Maybe now you're driving a car. Maybe now you're a a pilot in a jet airplane. I don't know. But you know you can continue on. and That's how our spiritual walk is too. So maybe begins to walk, and he falls many times, maybe hundreds of times, maybe more than that. But he falls, and he gets back up, and they skin their knees, and they skin their arms and their hands, and they hit their head, and there's pain, and they cry, and then they go do it again. You see, that's what you did. If you can walk today, or if you've ever walked in your life, that's what you did. You first rolled over, then you set up, then you crawled. Then you stood up. Then you stood freely. Then you walked. And then you ran. And then you jumped. And then you would spin around. And you would do all kinds of other things. You began to maybe, you know, dance, do other things. But you, it was a progression. And how you got there was keeping on, keeping on. You just kept on keeping on until you were able to do it. You didn't give up. You know, what if we had half a population that never gave, that gave up? They said, you know, I rolled over. That's enough. I'm not going any farther than this. I'm quite satisfied with just being able to roll over. So, you know, people are going to have to bring me my food and people are going to have to carry me to the bathroom and or put a diaper on me, or whatever, and this is, I'm going to have to have a job where I can just lay down. You know, that's just not how it works, and we can learn a lot from how a baby matures all the way up to where he begins to run. He's not satisfied with walking anymore. He wants to run. He's not satisfied with running anymore. He wants to jump, He's not satisfied with just jumping anymore. He wants to spin. Then he wants to learn moves, maybe moves in sports, moves in gymnastics, moves in, in dance, whatever, and, and, and you know, in some type of fitness training, whatever it happens to be, aerobics or whatever it happens to be. And then he maybe wants to move forward to play an, uh, you know, an instrument, to, to come down to where I want to teach my individual fingers how to flow on a keyboard or on a guitar or a violin, you know. But every time you embark upon something that is difficult and new, there's going to be hardships. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be pain. You learn to play guitar. I remember when I learned to play guitar, my, my, the ends of my fingers would bleed. You know, they had to get calloused, you know. I remember sometimes when I would do my exercises playing on the piano that my forearms would swell and just the muscles in there and they would burn. It's not just your fingers, it's your forearms when you're you're running scales and you're doing exercises, trying to teach your fingers to move very fast on a keyboard. But I'm glad I did it. I I'm very happy that I accomplished what I did. And you know, I had a goal. I I wanted to be the best. Now, I didn't achieve that goal. I might not have even achieved being the best that I could be. But with that in mind, I aimed high. And you know, when you aim high, even if you don't reach the pinnacle, you're going to, reach a high place. Amen? Hebrews chapter 11. You know, that man that's in us, he came as a baby. He had to learn to roll over. He had to learn, you know, to sit up. He had to learn to stand up to crawl and to stand up and to walk and eventually run and, and to be coordinated enough to do woodwork and different things, that Jesus, and you know the devil tried to kill him. The devil was terrified of him. The devil finally stirred up the religious leaders and the Roman uh, authorities to come together and to crucify Jesus, to kill him and put him in a tomb. And the devil thought he had won. But at the end of the third day, at the end of the Sabbath, that stone rolled away and Jesus came out. You know, Jesus was put in the grave for three days and three nights. He was put in the grave at the end of the day, which means he was resurrected at the end of the day. Otherwise, it'd be three days and four nights. But it was three days and three nights, the sign of Jonah. The only sign that Jesus would give, he said, that he was the Messiah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the grave. So he wasn't in the grave one and a half days. He wasn't in the grave two and a half days. He wasn't in the grave three and a half days. He was in the grave three days and three nights. Therefore, when Mary Magdalene discovered the tomb early Sunday morning, while it was yet dark, days began at sundown and ended sundown, While it was still dark, the tomb was already empty. And that was because Jesus was raised exactly three days and three nights on the uh, the Sabbath the previous day. Three days and three nights from when he was put in on a Wednesday evening Passover. Now it takes faith. You know, it takes faith in order to please God. It takes faith in order to keep on keeping on. You have to believe that you're working towards something. Uh, You have to believe also that you cannot fail, that there is no, um, you know, option. Failure is not an option. You cannot fail. Uh, You know, the Bible says, do not fall short of the grace in Hebrews chapter 12. Make sure that you don't fall short of the grace of God. And there's many things that can cause us to fall short. In that case, it says a root of bitterness. Therefore, it says, make sure that you pursue peace with all people. You hear me? Pursue peace with all people. Pursue peace with all people. Because without that sanctification, you will not see the Lord. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And make sure that there is no root of bitterness that is in you that will cause you to fall short of the grace of God. God gave the life of his son to give you that grace. Make sure that you don't allow it to, that you don't fall short. Allow something to cause you A sin to entangle you, something to encumber you, to cause you to fall short. Now, in conclusion, we're going to see here that these great cloud of witnesses had one thing in common they knew that they weren't home. They knew that this life, this world, was not their home. They knew that they were strangers in a foreign country and that they were pressing and looking forward to a heavenly country to a city whose builder and architect is God. And that's what motivated them. You see, when you understand that you're not here, you're not here for the things of today. Now, it's not wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to have things. Of course, we have things. But are you willing to lay down things? You see, when Jesus called people, many times he said, you follow me. And they had to just get up and leave right then. They couldn't go, you know, Said, well, I'll, I'll come back. I'll, I'll follow you later. You know, they weren't going to follow him in that case. I mean, one man said, well, I'm going, to go, I'm going to follow you, but let me go bury my father first. And Jesus said something that seems harsh, but it's not. He said, let the dead, leave the dead to bury the dead and you follow me. If you want life, if you you want to stay with the dead, to be among the dead, to bury the dead, stay. But if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me to life, then leave the dead to bury their own dead, and you follow me. Jesus was looking and knew. That he was going to go away to prepare a place for his bride. And that's what he is doing. Now, verse 13, it says, All these, these great men and women, died in faith, and they died without seeing the promises. They didn't receive them. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. See, do you confess that you are a stranger and an exile on the earth? If you feel like this is home, there's something wrong. You haven't caught the vision of the heavenly. You see, the flesh veils us. That flesh has to be removed in order for us to see the glory of the heavenly. It says, they died without receiving the promises. You know, Jesus said, blessed are those who believe yet have not seen. And he was referring to people like Abraham, like Moses, like Enoch, like Noah, like righteous Abel. The prophets, you see, they believed and received by faith. They could not look back to the cross of Calvary. They could not look back and see that there was a sacrifice made that was worthy to save them, to pass them from death to life. They could not. You and I can look back at the cross. We can look back and say, two thousand years ago. God became a man and he gave himself for us on a cross on Calvary and he paid for our sins. Noah, Abel, Moses, Abraham, they couldn't look back. Sarah couldn't look back. She had to look ahead and believe by faith that there would be a cross, that God would provide a body that he prepared that was worthy and capable of taking away the sins. So they lived without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they were looking ahead. They were looking past, you know, back into the future, as we would say. And having confessed, they said, after all, we're strangers God brought Abraham out of the the prestigious and magnificent city of Ur and said, live in the desert. Live in the desert. Follow me and live in the desert. It was teaching him, that's not home. I know you love that city. That's the city of your birth. That's the city of your family. A wonderful, incredible city. Greatest city maybe that's ever been. But Abraham... I've called you to be a citizen of another city, a city whose architect and builder is not a man, but God. I've called you out of the the country of the Chaldeans, and I've called you in the heavenly country where myriads of angels are there, and the new Jerusalem is waiting to come down to a new heaven, through a new heaven to a new earth. That was to remind him, you are a stranger now, we get quite at home here, but we need to remember, you should write it down. Write down today. If you get nothing out of this, please write down what is it that encumbers you, what is holding you back, what keeps you from truly running. Think of a baby. <laughs> Think of a baby that's, that's, that's got his uh, shorts down around his ankles. Now, how is he going to run? Maybe he'll try to run and he'll fall over and over again. But you take those shorts off his ankles, he can run. You see, because you're taking away what's encumbering him. Perhaps he's playing with a jump rope and he gets it all tangled up around himself and he can't move freely. That's sin that so easily entangles. Write down, privately. Maybe confess to a close friend, someone that will hold you accountable and say, I have this problem. I have trouble forgiving I have this trouble. I, I can't seem to, to not take into account a wrong suffered. I, I have bitterness. Uh, I, I have lust in my heart. I have pride. I'm prideful. And God looks to the humble. That's who he looks to. I mean, whatever it happens to be, whatever it happens to be, we all have different problems. We, have, we all have different areas that the devil can strategically attack us. And we need people. The Bible says, confess to one another. I'm sure that's not talking about, hey, let's get up here at Testimony and we confess our sins, every sin we've got to everybody. It's not that. It is you have someone that is close to you that you can say, look, I'm struggling with this. Will you help me? And maybe I can help you. And then... You know, write those things down. And then write down this. I am not. I am a stranger. I am an exile on this earth. I'm a pilgrim. And I'm on a pilgrimage. And there's nowhere on this earth where I can find my home. But I have a heavenly country and a city whose architect and builder is God. And that's my home. And I'm awaiting my beloved. I am preparing myself as his bride. And I want to be found worthy. I want to be found pure and chaste. I want to be a virgin in his sight. I want to be undefiled. I want my love for him to be as undefiled as his love is for me. Help me. Guard the holy flame, that it would not be corrupted by the flesh. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would not have opportunity to return. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. I want us to think about that last verse as we close today. God is not ashamed to be called your God if you are looking and desiring and searching and living for on a journey, not from Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne to Sydney, like that great marathon race in Australia, are not anywhere in this world, but from here to there, to a heavenly city, a heavenly country, a heavenly city that is prepared for us. We desire it. Do you desire it? Is there something in the way, something here, something earthly, something fleshly in the way that keeps you from desiring it. You know, I had a close friend who we were in the faith together. We raised our families together. He was a sign writer, and I owned a sign company here in Russellville. And so we, he would come through every so often. Of course, he lived nearby, but he would work. He traveled do with, he, he worked for Coca-Cola company as a sign writer, and so he would deliver signs all over rural areas, and he would come through, and lots of times we would have lunch together, and we became very close. He'd been to my house for dinner many times. I've been at his house for dinner many times. We raised, He had uh, three children, is that right? Two or three? Three. And uh, so we raised our children together, and... At one point, he decided that he was going to take the step of going into business for himself, like I was. And he bought a sign company. And I counseled him against buying that sign company. I I counseled him to just open his own because I knew the person who owned the sign company and he was not trustworthy. And it ended up to where my friend ended up going bankrupt. But in the meantime, he was very excited. And I remember one time we were having lunch and, and uh, there's some, some world events had just gone on. I don't remember what it was. It could have been the Soviet Union collapsing. It could have been the Berlin Wall coming down. But anyway, that directed my mind, my mind to end-time prophecies and the coming of the Lord, the great tribulation coming of the Lord. And I said, Jim, you know, it looks like we're really in the last days. And looks like the great tribulation is just around the corner, and Christ is going to come at the end of it. And you know, we talked about these things many times. He was happy to talk about those things. He felt the same way I did before, but not now. You see, something was encumbering him now. Something had tangled him up. Something earthly had tangled him up. And he literally looked at me and said, well, I don't want the Lord to come right now, because I am so enjoying starting my, own, you know, my, my new business, and I'm so happy about it. I was dumbfounded. I mean, I understand. I've started businesses before, and it's fun, and it's exciting. But I said, brother, what about all the people who are suffering? What about all the injustice in the world that's going to be done away with after the return of Christ Jesus? That's got to be what we're looking for, a heavenly country. And a city whose architect and builder is God. And so I'll end with verse 16 and we'll close. But as it is, they desire a better country, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, because of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because, listen, He's prepared a city for them. A city which He's going to live in, too. Amen? So let's keep on keeping on and endure until the end. God bless you. I love you all.